0: Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Our text this morning is found on page 304 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. I'll ask you this question that we will contemplate at the end of the sermon as well. Are you here to worship? We continue to study the life of David, and if you're new to us, you may wonder why we would study David, or even why we would study this passage, which speaks of God's judgment to one priest for an action that appears innocent, or at least not worthy of death. And We study through books of the Bible, and this is the text we find ourselves in today and once again we will be reminded that our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, we belong to God and once again we will see that the only hope for our life is to surrender the control of our lives and even to surrender what we think about God to his control. Now the context here is known as the beginning of the golden age of Israel as David has moved the capital to Jerusalem. David's reign and Solomon's reign is considered the golden age of Israel. And David wants to make worship, it appears, central to the city's experience. And he brings the ark, or desires to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, that it might be central to the community. This week and next week, we'll study this chapter talking about God's liturgical community. Today we'll look at this this week the idea that we need to restore awe of God Himself and His holiness if we are to be a liturgical community. And then next week we'll talk about ritualizing gladness that comes from God's presence. First restoring awe in understanding God's presence and God's purity, as well as God's power. God's presence teaches us that we were made for intimacy. God's purity teaches us that we need cleansing, and God's power promises us that there's strengthening hope. We'll learn this from the text this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new card and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the Lord. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the Ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it Aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, and the sound of the horn. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. We are thankful, O God, that you give us your word and this picture of yourself we pray if there's anyone here outside of Christ's cleansing touch that they would be touched by you and healed and brought into your family. Teach us more about what it means, Father, to be near you and to honor you in your holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in the first chapter, he says that all religions deal with three aspects of life that are difficult to understand. First, it's what you assign awe to. What do you revere? Secondly, what do you attach dread to? What are you fearful of? And then thirdly, morality. How do you make sense of what ought to be, though you look around at He says that religions help people blend these things together, what to give our awe to, what to give our dread to, and also how we can change. Now he goes on and says that even irreligious people are trying to make sense of those three things. What do we revere? What do we fear? And then how do we make sense of this broken world? How do we bring some sense of order and change to it? You may look at this passage and wonder, what did David have in mind? Why did he want to bring the ark to Israel? The text doesn't tell us about David's motives. We can only speculate. Maybe David wanted a visible symbol of uniting the northern and southern tribes as he's been anointed recently king and moved the capital to Jerusalem. Maybe there's self-promotion here for power, for David to show that he is central and he's doing this for the people. Maybe David thought that he could manipulate God, he could control God, and if he had the ark, he would have even greater power and influence. The text doesn't tell us David's motives, but the text also doesn't mention that David sought the Lord to do this. You'll notice in the chapter that preceded this, before David went to battle, we're told over and over again, David sought the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. We see this pattern throughout 1 and 2 Samuel that David sometimes seeks the Lord and inquires of the Lord. And then the the narrator is silent at other times. And here in this text, we're not told that David sought the Lord. Regardless of David's motive, God's response is this. It's time for a wake-up call for King David and for the people of God. They have been neglecting God and God's worship, and God will make his point clear to one of his priests. First and obvious lesson is that when we approach God, we can only approach God in terms that he has prescribed in his word. You can't approach God as you prescribe. He's not Santa Claus, he's not the man upstairs, he's not the big guy. He's a holy God, and He determines how we are to approach Him. We are invited to draw near, but only as He has prescribed. Now, let me describe the the ark. What was the ark? The ark was a sacred golden chest. It was made of wood covered with gold, about four feet by two feet by two feet approximately. It represented God's presence for the people, and it had been fashioned in the days of Moses' And God had given strict instructions for the use of the ark. It was to be central to Israel's worship. Next week we'll talk more about the whole liturgical experience. But just note this the ark was central to Israel's experience with God. Inside the ark was the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai, Aaron's bud, Aaron's rod, which had uh, budded and also manna from the wilderness. So it represented God's uh, uh, presence, it represented God's purity, but it also represented God's power. Now where had the ark been? In 1 Samuel 4 through 6 we're told that the leaders of the military decided to take the ark up against the Philistines and not only did Israel fail, but the Philistines captured the ark. And the Philistines thought that they now have the power, the secret power of Israel in their, in their keeping. And they put it in several places, but everywhere that that ark went, it only brought uh, judgment and plagues on the Philistines. So much so that eventually they put it on a wooden cart. Pulled by oxen and just sent it back to Israel. It's kind of comical if you read 1 Samuel 4 through 6, they think that they have found the secret. And it's comical because God begins to defeat Israel's enemies and there's not even one Israelite presence. God's presence is defeating Israel's enemies. So they send it back, but they mishandle the ark and we read that others open the ark and are killed. And so it's been abandoned, neglected in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. And now David says that we're going to bring the ark up and we're going to make it central to our lives. The problem here is the ark was more dangerous to Israel than it was to the Philistines. Once again, let me remind you the instructions. They were to carry the ark on their shoulders. There were rods, rods that uh, went into some golden rings. Four Levites were to carry the ark on their shoulders. They were not to touch it, and they were to cover it. And they were to sacrifice before and after moving the ark. Well, they did none of this. And who knows how many times that they touched it before, but it's very clear they were not following God's instructions. David knew the presence of God. He knew that the Ten Commandments represented the power and the strength of God. And he knew the purity that was needed. On the top of the ark was two cherubim. And this is where sacrifice was offered once a year. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the ark. Asking for cleansing and covering of the people's sins, and then a scapegoat was released into the wilderness Demonstrating to Israel that your sins can be covered by God alone when the perfect sacrifice is altered We see in verses 2 and 3 that They understand that the ark represents God's name. It says his self-revelation It represents his power. He is the Lord of hosts and it represents his purity. That ark is the footstool, footstool, it says, of the throne of God. The message is very clear. Worship is to be central, but God is holy. We must submit to him, and we must trust him as the center of our lives. He's not a trinket. He's not to be trifled with. He's not someone you can control. When you feel angry at God, you should be fearful like David was. As soon as David recognized his anger, he became afraid because he recognized he was dealing with a holy God. So first and foremost, if we're to live in awe of God's, in God's presence, we must submit to him and trust him. Secondly, we must make his covenant to us our highest attention. Now, it is true that modern people dismiss the Bible for lots of reasons, but often this story makes it hard for modern people to believe, and some will say, well, I prefer the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love, but here in the Old Testament, he's the God of judgment. I don't want to be around a God that would cause someone to die because they just were doing something that looks innocent here. Well. Breaking this rule was was more than just one incident. The priest of God had neglected God. They did not understand his holiness, and God had been patient, and God had been long-suffering, but his anger had been provoked. The Bible says that, that he is patient and long-suffering, but it says that He is not easily provoked to anger, but here he has provoked the anger. Now, the amazing thing is that all of Israel didn't die, or they hadn't died already for their neglect of the instructions of God, or that David didn't die, or that they didn't die putting the ark on the cart, which is how the Philistines transported God's ark. It's amazing that we don't die. And in the New Testament, as the early church was forming, we're told in Acts 4 that they early church kept sensing God's awe. Amazing things that God was doing. Ananias and Sapphira saw that people were selling their own property and giving it the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to the poor, to advance the mission, to spread the gospel. And it says that Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of their property and they pretended to give all the proceeds, but they gave but a portion. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter tells them, this is not socialism. When you sold your property, it was still under your control. You weren't obligated to give this. These people are giving out of generosity but you lied to the Holy Spirit. You pretended to give all, but you gave but a portion. And they dropped dead and they died. And it was all struck to the people. It's a wonder we don't die because the chasm between God's holiness and our sinfulness is so massive. And God has committed to his church being holy. We're told that judgment starts with the household of God. What's the role of judgment in the life of a believer? If we've been cleansed from sin by what Jesus has done, what's the role of judgment? Well, the role of judgment, Hebrews 12 says, is to discipline us, to chastise us. At times we need wake-up calls. God's mercy doesn't destroy us, but it does tell us that we're playing with fire. And we need wake-up calls because we are prone to wander, because we do touch that which is defiled. It is interesting that Uzzah thought that the dirt on the ground would defile the ark, and God said, the dirt in your heart defiles me. Isn't it amazing? Christian, that God does cleanse? That God forgives? That's what Jesus did when he marched into Jerusalem. And he went into the temple and cleansed the temple. And then Jesus went to the cross. We're told that when Jesus died, the temple veil, the curtain, over 300 feet high, was torn from top to bottom, 60 feet wide. It was torn from top to bottom because the only thing that could bring you into the presence of God is His touch. His touch through the cross comes down and touches defiled people. And we can be in His presence. We can know intimacy. We can be cleansed. We can be forgiven. And we can find strength, the manna from heaven. His very obedience can become our strength. But he's very clear. Do not treat this gift with neglect. Don't even touch it. Don't try to add to it. Don't put it off and neglect it. Recognize that he has touched your heart and he wants to change your heart and he's invited you to draw near. That's why I ask you, are you here to worship? It is. To grow in our awe of God. J.F. Packer talks about this in his book, Knowing God. And he has a chapter called The Goodness and Severity of God, and he says that we must always think of God in terms of both his severity and his generosity, or we do not understand the holy God that has invited us near. Severity denotes A decisive withdrawal of his goodness to those who spurn him. Generosity offers forgiveness and restoration, but it is costly. It's wrong to think that salvation is free. Salvation is a gift, but it is costly. It costs the death of Jesus Christ, and God's severity fell on him. That makes our hearts tender. We recognize we do not deserve his love. Forgiveness and mercy that falls on us makes us glad, and we draw near to him as David does in the text here. He says, Who am I to have the ark of God come to me? We recognize we are undeserving, but then when David hears that the ark was blessing Obed, Edom, then David realizes the covenant promise. You see, the covenant of grace is the promise of blessing, what God will do for you. There's two covenants in the Bible, actually seven or many covenants of the second covenant. We'll look at the covenant that God makes David in chapter 7 when we get to it in two weeks. But there's the covenant of works, which is God's covenant that he made with man. Man broke that covenant. The covenant of grace is the covenant God made to Abraham and all the other covenants grow out of that covenant which is that God will keep the terms of the covenant himself and that God will cut himself apart and take on the terms of the blessing and the curses of the covenant so that we might know him. So what Packer is saying is that We need to see God as holy, and only through Jesus and his touch are we forgiven. David understood this later in Psalm 24. He writes, who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord and stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. It changes what we touch. It changes what we want. It makes us long, For holiness we want to be near to him we long for cleansing we look to him for strength now talking about being angry with God often brings up a reality that some people have walked through something in their life so hurtful so harmful so confusing that they say I don't think I can trust God anymore I whether they admit that they're angry at the Lord or not, they say, I'm not sure I can draw near or I want him near. I think that's normal. I'll tell you that you'll get to a place in your life, all of us, when we will feel that God is not safe or that God is not faithful to his promises. This text and all texts point us To the fulfillment of the ark. I mentioned that the fulfillment of the ark, all that has been completed and accomplished in what Jesus Christ has done for us. The Westminster Confession says that Jesus fulfills the office of king and prophet and priest. And Jesus fulfilled all that God expected. As a king, Jesus brings God's presence to us. As a prophet, Jesus brings God's Word, the commandments, to us, and as a priest, Jesus brings the cleansing and the strength that we need to us. But we are to live awestruck. And I'll remind you that even though not every question in your life will be answered, God demands that you trust Him. Now. In the Bible, the person that I think we would say, other than Jesus, is documented that suffered the most would be Job. And you'll recall in the book of Job that Job's wife told Job, You should curse God, you should not trust Him, and you should turn away from Him. You've either deserved this or God has abandoned you. And Job says this in chapter 2 Can we not receive good? and not trouble from the Lord. It's the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was holding on to that covenant promise. But if you look to chapters 38 through 41, God answers Job. God comes to Job and he doesn't give him direct answers. But if you read chapters 38 through 41, this is God's answer. Do you know my awe, Job? My awe is your answer to why you must trust me. Were you there when I created the universe? Were you there when I put the stars in the sky? Were you there when I created all of the animals? Do you control the storms and the winds? God says that my answer for you is my awe. In my awe, you can find strength. The alternative is either we'll grow cold and angry at God. We'll try to manage God. I was talking to someone during uh, the Sunday school hour about giving up control. And they said, just honestly, Mike, I have in the back of my mind, I keep trying to do the right things. Why is these difficult things still happening to me? And I want to control God. I want to control the ark. I want to tell God what to do, and what God says is that I'm calling you to surrender. I'm calling you to trust me, and in acceptance, you will find and discover my all. What about you? Do you need to recapture a sense of awe in the greatness of God? All is the answer to anxiety. It's also the answer to ego. It delivers us from neurosis and narcissism. I was reading this week that research at the University of Toronto and the University of Pennsylvania of psychologists have discovered that being out in creation and gaining a sense of awe resettles our inward nature interesting, the Psalms have already told us that, but it's interesting that research is now showing that when people feel anxious and feel uh, uncertain about themselves to remove the tyranny of the ego, when you become enraptured with something greater than yourself, the research says, that overwhelming beauty and bigness brings you a sense of peace. How much more with redemption? The redemption that we have in Jesus Christ that settles our souls all makes us more aware of God's presence in your life and in your moments. All makes you more appreciative for his mercy and his grace. All makes you more attentive to the things of God and delivers you from the neglect, the awful neglect of sin. It delivers you from man-centered living. It's a great question to ask. Do I live God-centered? Am I living in all of his work? What about those areas that are troubling you, that don't seem to go away? I think that David's answer is we surrender to God, we wait and we watch. We trust God because all says that God is enough all says that we have what we need, all says that we can draw near. Next week we'll look more at how to ritualize our gladness, but Hebrews four says this, the book of Hebrews is written explaining how Jesus fulfills all of the uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament, but it says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to obtain mercy, And find grace to help in time of need. This week I recorded the funeral of Queen Elizabeth and I didn't want to get up at three o'clock and watch it live but I recorded it and I went uh, later that afternoon and Sandra and I sat down and it it was awe-inspiring I would say. Thousands of people were outside just to see the body moved into Westminster Abbey and Millions watched it all around the world. The liturgy was so stunning. The message that that liturgy for thousands of years has been read made me think of my visit to Westminster Abbey. Several years ago I was doing missions work and we were on our way to North Africa. Chris Drinkard, one of our missionaries, was with me and we had a layover in London. Now, I was not aware, or hadn't paid that much attention, that my layover was 12 hours. And so once we landed, it was morning, and so I said, let's get out and explore. So we went to Trafalgar Square, we went to Buckingham Palace, and we went down to Westminster Abbey. And there were thousands of people waiting to get into Westminster Abbey. I found out that day that you have to have a ticket to get in to tour Westminster Abbey. And the person selling the tickets laughed at me and said, it's months in advance in order to reserve one of these tickets. So we just walked around the outside, looked at some of the grave markers, and I saw a man standing there, nicely dressed, holding what looked like some bulletins. He was at a side door. And I walked up to him, and he asked me this question. He said welcome sir are you here to worship I said uh, are they going to have a worship service in here and he looked at me and said yes every morning and evening for a thousand years we've had a worship service in the Abbey it's a parish this is a, a parish service I said of course I'm here to worship he handed me the bulletin we walked right in I sat down right where the king was seated. There was about 10 people there. There was a full boys choir and full instrumentation. And I want you to know, I believe that I felt like I was in the holy of holies. When we came to the part of confession of sin, I got down on my knees on that floor. We were the only two that were kneeling and we worshiped. It was awesome. It was awe-inspiring. It's really sad and silly how we use that word today. Everything is awesome. Little memes of cats and children are awesome. Or, right, are we, we think that's so cute. All belongs to God and God alone. All is what He deserves. Our salvation should cause us, no matter what we face, to be full of gladness because we touched what was untouchable. We touched his holiness because his holiness touched us in the person of Jesus Christ. I'll ask you again, are you here to worship? Let's pray together. Father, we're humbled that you would say, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know this cleansing, this intimacy, this strength, may today be the day of salvation. And all that do know, Lord, we confess we have neglected the greatest gift the gift of your Son, the nearness of the Holy Spirit. Fill our minds and our hearts with awe and worship. And Lord, make us into people who proclaim your greatness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.